Oh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have this day to open up your holy scriptures. As we do so, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive them and that you would write upon the tables of our hearts with indelible ink the principles, the precepts, the commands, the statutes, all those glorious words that the psalmist uses to describe that which never withers or fails or fades. Your word, that which is proclaimed eternally, that which you have granted to us in covenant revelation by your sovereign hand of mercy, reaching through the clouds that day on Sinai, as it were, writing with your very finger on the stones that the prophet received Moses on that glorious day. Lord, to the awestruck wonder of those who stood, crying out for a mediator to stand between them and a holy God, recognizing that they fall short of your glory, and in your presence no sin and no uh, frailty of humanity deserves to stand, and recognizing that their sins must be atoned for. Father, these are the words that we hold in our hand and that we hear in our ears today. I pray that you would open our heart to uh, consider them with reverence, knowing that Jesus Christ is that mediator that allows us to stand in the presence of a holy God with our sins washed away, and knowing that in these words is the key to life and life eternal. We pray especially for the young people in our midst today, those who are in our homes that we as parents are called to raise in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We pray that these words which speak directly to them and their call to stand for you in a day when it is difficult to pass the test of youth by clinging to your word. We pray that you would bless them and equip them and establish them and send their spiritual roots deep into streams of living water. And would you use these means today to do this, the proclamation of your word and the continual application of the same through those who are called in their homes to proclaim the nurture and admonition of the Lord and place upon the doorposts of their houses the words and the precepts of your holy word. Thank you for this time that we have today. I pray that you would use it for your glory and for the equipping of your saints for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're able, would you turn with me to Psalm 119 this morning? It is our privilege to open up the Holy Scriptures and to consider the second in the section, the second section in this great acrostic psalm. Psalm 119, 9 through 16 will be our verses of consideration this morning under the title, the Hebrew word Beth, and then a further title for our message today, the trial of youth. Just a quick reminder, an acrostic psalm, as we've come to understand, is a psalm that is quite unique and structured around the Hebrew alphabet. In this case, the first eight verses all begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In Psalm 119, that would be Aleph. I received a correction of my pronunciation, and I'm thankful for that. Although I missed it last week, I'm going to try to uh, adjust my, uh, my pronunciation accordingly, even as I'm quite familiar with English and uh, quite unfamiliar with Hebrew. However, one thing if you were familiar with Hebrew, you would understand is that each verse of Psalm 119, 1 through 8, begins with the same letter, and that's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And then the second section, the next eight verses, begin with the Hebrew word Beth. So how can a young man keep his way pure? The psalmist asks in verse 9. That verse begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and this pattern continues successfully for all 22 sections, which of course is the same number of letters in the alphabet, the end of the song, giving us 176 verses. An amazing piece of literary genius, which proclaims to us the sufficiency of God's Word. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture for the test of youth. Would you stand with me as you're able, and let us hear God's Word proclaimed in our ears today, and with reverence consider this immortal truth. This is Psalm 119 under the title Beth, beginning in verse 9. The psalmist says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. 
I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The Trials of Youth. Johannes Palantarius, if I'm pronouncing his name right, wrote of Psalm 119 in the year 1600 the following, quote, The psalm is called the alphabet of divine love, the paradise of all the doctrines, the storehouse of the Holy Spirit, the school of truth, also the deep mystery of the scriptures, where the whole moral discipline of all the virtues shines brightly. And as all moral instruction is delightsome, therefore this psalm, because excelling in this kind of instruction, should be called delightsome, inasmuch as it surpasses the rest. The other psalms, truly as lesser stars, shine somewhat. But listen to this sentence. But this burns with the meridian heat of its full brightness and is wholly resplendent with moral loveliness. I love that last line. This burns with meridian, that means high point or zenith or uh, crescendo, the the most uh, incredible, standing above the rest. This burns with the meridian heat of its full brightness and is wholly resplendent with moral loveliness. I wonder what your favorite psalm is. Psalm 23 is a beloved psalm that many people would probably cite. Maybe you've memorized portions of the psalm or particular uh, chapters in the Psalter are precious to you because they spoke to you at a particular time in your life. Well, I think the answer that Johannes would give us for your favorite psalm is quite clear. Psalm 119. I wonder how many people today share that answer. Psalm 119 is not light reading or it's not one of those brief you know, little vignettes that you can print on a card and hang on your mirror or turn one calendar page or have a you know, little brief saying. It requires deep thought, and it is quite lengthy, the longest chapter, of course, in the Bible. Nevertheless, as uh, our author says today, commentating on its beauty, it burns with the meridian heat, and its full brightness is wholly resplendent with moral loveliness. Another way to connect the dots in this regard is if you do not love the law of God, certainly Psalm 119 will not be your favorite psalm because it basically expounds on the glories of the moral loveliness of God's precepts, the right order that He has established in His Holy Word over and over again so that the uh, reader can commit to his memory and commit to application and, and to rehearse with disciplined attention all of the glories of the Word of God over and over again. Another author, Matthew Henry, author of, of course, a treasured Bible commentary, recalling his own upbringing and speaking of his father, said the following. This is particular to Psalm 119 as well. Quote, Once, pressing the study of the Scriptures, he advised us to take a verse of this psalm every morning to meditate upon. And so go over the psalm twice in the year. And that, saith he, will bring you to be in love with all the rest of the scriptures. Close quote. Great advice, we could say, from the father of a child. The child being Matthew Henry himself would go on to write perhaps the most doctrinally sound, while devotionally rich, commentary on all the scriptures. Beloved, beloved to this day by countless Christians, including myself. I've often said, you know, if I had to go into solitary confinement and I was given the choice of the scriptures themselves and one commentary, what would I take? The answer is clear for me. Matthew Henry would certainly be my choice. And perhaps we see in this quote one of the reasons why. It's because Matthew Henry was raised by a father who instructed him to take one verse of Psalm 119 once a day until he'd gone through it twice in a year to learn and consider and to treasure all of the rest of the scriptures. And as you read his commentary, I encourage you to download it, perhaps as an app on your phone if you don't uh, want to carry around the more weighty hard, hard copy. 
But if you consider his commentary in the devotionally rich and doctrinally sound way and he treated the scriptures, perhaps by this quote we see some of the behind the scenes that made that possible. A disciplined attention, a love, and a careful consideration for the whole word of God nurtured by parents, by a father who instructed him to take seriously Psalm 119 and to meditate on it uh, until he had a deeper appreciation for all the rest of the scriptures. So following the olive portion, uh, we now have the Beth portion in our text today. One more note of context and scriptural background. We considered last time we were preaching from this text how the first nine verses, the first eight verses, excuse me, of the psalm carry more weight and their emphasis is more clear when we consider a historical background, namely the giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapters, or excuse me, in Exodus, was it chapters 4 and 5? Let me check my notes and uh, just to uh, make sure I, I'm having, I have the right reference here. Uh, suffice it to say, at the giving of the law, yes, that would be Deuteronomy 4 and 5, at the, beginning, at the giving of the law, heaven and earth shook with the weight of that revelation. And so we asked ourselves, what would a psalm uh, look like that commemorated that moment and took seriously the weight of the law. Well, Psalm 119 would certainly make sense in light of that context. Well, in Deuteronomy, there's a shift in theme from the giving of the law to the teaching of the law in, in, in the record of the Pentateuch, Moses' first five books. We could say it this way by context for the second portion. If the giving of the law provides a weighty background for verses 1 through 8, then certainly the teaching of the law would provide a background and context for verses 9 through 16. Let me read to you what was our worship text this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This would be verses 4 through 9. Here, the Shema, the commentary, or the uh, confessional statement of, of religion for the Jews and for true believers of all time, uh, the revelation of God and all His glory and perfections, is rehearsed following instructions accordingly. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here we have, in the context of the giving of the law, instruction for the teaching of the same. And we see that one of the primary means that God has ordered for the law to be impressed upon the soul of the next generation is that it would be featured in the training of the young person. Now, young people, before this service today, I approached uh, several of you and I said, pay attention, listen closely, today's message is primarily for you. So along those lines, I would encourage you to listen back again to the recording or to take those notes and uh, to put them in your Bible, uh, to do something to take seriously the charge that's set before you today. Because not only does Deuteronomy 6 give special instructions for your parents to raise you in the way, but Psalm 119, in the same spirit, gives you instructions on how to guard your way according to the Word of God. The Beth portion, the second set of eight verses, introduces a pattern in the structure of ideas, by the way, that will persist throughout Psalm 119. And as we said before, if the theme of this section is the sufficiency of the Scriptures for the test of youth, Psalm 119 will continue to give us a a testimony, excuse me, of the sufficiency of scriptures for other trials as well. The psalm will continue along, this, along these lines, and this will provide a guide for future sermons, by the way. That is to say that not only is the word of God sufficient for the trials and test of youth, even, but it is also sufficient in the next section for the trials of sojourning and then suffering, and then selfishness, scoffers, derision, captivity, false witness, slander, persecution, 
conspiracy, deception, affliction, duplicity, oppression, subjugation, anguish, malice, slavery, tyranny, and wandering. So that's just a little bit of a background and introduction for you. A couple of quotes that illustrate to us the weight and significance and importance of this psalm. A historical background which reminds us that of the weighty giving of the law and then of the charge to teach the law and the introduction of a theme which will persist throughout the psalm, the sufficiency of the scripture for the tests of life. And today we consider particularly the test of youth. So young people, listen up. So if my introduction was complicated thus far, let me make it simple with this heading and four points today. The godly young person is, number one, a soldier, number two, a treasurer, number three, a student, and finally, an enthusiast. A soldier, a treasurer, a student, and an enthusiast. Now, after each one of those titles, you could put the Word of God. A godly young person is a soldier of the Word of God, if you will, or a treasurer of the Word of God, a student of God's Word, and finally, an enthusiast of God's Word. Let, re, let me remind you that at least eight references to the Word of God occur in this, in this psalm and are repeated over and over again. And if you highlight those in your Bible, which I suggest you might do, they stand out as jewels in the text, if you will. A law, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, statutes, word, commandments, words, statutes, rules, testimonies, precepts, ways, statues, and word. The first 16 verses, those are the references to the Word of God that continually come to the fore, including 10 references in our verses today, reminding us that all of life and all of the application of life is to be centered upon the Word of God. The godly young person is a soldier. Consider verses 9 and 10. This question is raised, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer is given, by guarding it according to your word. And the next verse, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. Each one of our subpoints today uh, just takes a theme and applies it to a pairing of verses. These two verses have some parallels which instruct the godly young person to be diligent in his duty, that is to guard his way according to the Word of God. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a New Testament cross-reference which expands and applies this concept and it has the same context as well. This is 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. You can turn there. Who's writing? Well, Paul, he's an apostle. He's the one who is charged with the duty to proclaim the Word of God and to train up others. Well, he has a student. He has a young person that he is himself as training for the work of the ministry, and that would be Timothy. So the context matches that of Psalm 119, the Beth section. It is instruction for the way of a young man. So Paul writes to Timothy in affectionate terms as a fatherly figure and as a mentor in his life and says the following in 2 Timothy 2.1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He goes on, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Guard your way according to the word of God. Be diligent, be a sentry, be well fortified or well strengthened by the armaments that Paul would go on to describe in Ephesians chapter 6 to stay on task, on mission, and to stay loyal to your commander and do not get distracted by all of the things, Paul calls them civilian pursuits, that which holds the attention of those who are not on mission, who are not aware of their calling, who are not soldiers. Understand that your calling is particular. And that the challenges and tests of youth require special attention. And so be vigilant. Be faithful in this regard. He uses two other analogies, incidentally, in this section to describe this call. He says in verse 5, Furthermore, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
Then he says in verse 6, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. And then he ties this to the gospel directly in verse 8. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. <clears throat> so young people, if you have heard the gospel preached, if you have surrendered to the message of Jesus Christ, dying for your sins, and then rising again with victory over your sin, victory over the grave, securing your safe passage to an eternal life, then you are a Christian. If you believe this with all your heart and now seek to follow Christ, that is to say you have a new commander and you have a new calling. And what is this calling? It's to guard your way according to the word of God. To be a good soldier doesn't get tangled up in civilian affairs off mission and disobedient and insubordinate to his commander, the authority over him. It's to be a good athlete that plays according to the rules, or you could say the precepts, the statutes, the commandments, all of those words that Psalm 119 uses to describe the way that God has laid out in his holy word. You have a calling to be a farmer, that is one who is diligent to think ahead and plan accordingly and submit and to, and to surrender to the terms whereby if you follow the protocol, you will reap a harvest. So this is the calling that Paul lays out for Timothy. It really is a reiteration of the theme of Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, the Beth portion. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his word. There's two elements of soldiering, if you will, that we see in parallel in verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 119. The first is dominion, to take action, and the second is devotion, to loyalty. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking action, taking dominion, guarding it according to your word. This dominion calling refers all the way back to what was to the failure of duty of Adam in the first place. You remember in the garden, Adam, the first man, was given a calling. He was put on mission. His authority, his commander, was the Lord himself. And after creating Adam, God said to keep the garden, to guard, that is, the way of the garden. But not just the garden, to guard it from any potential threats that would come uh, across the way, but also to guard his wife according to the word of God. And thirdly, to guard as he, he was the covenant head of all humanity, all, his fut all future generations according to the word of God. This was the dominion call, a godly young person, and even Adam his, himself was called to be a soldier, to take dominion. Was Adam faithful in this regard? No, of course he wasn't, leading to the fall. And the fall led to the compromise of the garden by the presence of the serpent and Adam failing to stomp on his head. It would require a second Adam indeed, Jesus Christ. We just read of him in Paul's instructions to Timothy to crush the serpent's head, to take dominion. Nevertheless, when we come to the Lord, he gives us this calling to restore, to realize what was lost in Adam is now given to us as a charge a cultural mandate, if you will, or a dominion call, the calling of a soldier to guard our ways according to the word of God, to keep and guard the garden, to keep and guard, if you will, the premises of what God has put us in charge of. Young people, how do you keep and guard your way according to the word of God? Well, if the enemy wants to come across the territory of your thoughts and giving you temptations, you are to take the word of God and to use it as a weapon and to stomp on Satan's head. If uh, he's put you in charge of anything else, anything that you're responsible for, and the enemy would seek to find a way to come in and to compromise your mission, then you are to take dominion and to stomp on the, on the serpent's head. Secondly, devotion, dominion and devotion. With my whole heart, the psalmist says in verse 10, he's personalizing this, I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. So the best soldier is one who is on mission, who understands his duty and is well trained for the task and is devoted to his commander. The best soldiers are undivided in their loyalty. They're devoted to their mission 
and they're devoted to the general who sends them on that mission. How might you measure this loyalty in your own life? Well, perhaps the disciplines of day-to-day life. Perhaps the very thing that Matthew Henry's dad uh, uh, set, set forth as a vision for him to take one verse of Psalm 119 once a day and to consider it, to meditate upon it. And then by the time the year's done, you have about 13 extra days, you'll have considered each verse uh, daily, twice in the course of a year. And if you're faithful to do something like that, if not that, open up the scriptures, if not that, you know, memorize and uh, uh, participate with a, attention in the family worship sessions within your homes as your parents are opening up the scriptures for you. Disciplines of this kind of day-to-day training are a measure of your devotion. Your devotion ultimately to the Lord, but also your obedience and honoring to parents. This is soldier training. This is training you to guard your way according to the Word of God. So pay close attention to that, uh, that operation that's taking place in your own home and in your own soul. Consider it as uh, special training, as boot camp, if you will, for the calling that you have. A godly young person is indeed a soldier. Now, the secondly, in our text today, a word that could describe the calling of a godly young person is a treasurer. Note verse 11. The psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We could pair this verse, I submit, with verse 14, which says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Riches are something that we store up. Store up in your word, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In your way, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Now you'll notice that these two verses are separated by two more. 11 and 14 have 12 and 13 in between them. And this is sometimes a way of structuring, uh, we've called it in the past a chiastic epicenter, which is a complicated way of saying there's a certain symmetry to the ideas, which focuses your attention on the center, which we'll consider in a moment. Suffice it to say, we learn from verses 11 and 14 that the young person, the godly young person, by the way, I, I keep emphasizing young person because it's the main theme of the Beth portion, how can a young man keep his way pure. But these words, of course, are universal. You're not just a young person by age, but if you're starting out your Christian walk, you're a young person spiritually. And also, all of us can relate to the calling of growth unto maturity until we advance to glory one day. Therefore, this section relates or has application for all of us. That is to say, we all should be treasurers of God's word. Now, there are two aspects of this call to be a treasurer. One is preparation, and the other is pleasure. You could say defense and delight. Building a ready defense. Imagine a city wall, or imagine a castle, and you're called to build this castle and to defend it. And uh, kids, how many of you like to collect agates? I know some of you have shown off the treasures that you have found along the way. Those... uh, Semi-precious gemstones in our experience are exciting to find because they're rare and they have some value to them. I was listening, or I was reading the, a news story. It's kind of caught my eye recently about a woman who was walking along a pathway in a state park in Arkansas, and the sun was, you know, uh, at just the right angle and caught uh, a, a small stone and and uh, lit it up a bit, and she was able to collect for herself a four-carat diamond along the pathway in this state park. Of course, it was notable event enough to become a news story and to catch my attention and so forth. In a similar way, when you're out agate hunting and you see that precious stone, if you have your eye tuned for that treasure, it uh, strikes you as precious, and then you pick it up and save it. Well, now imagine finding an agate the size of your head, you know, something huge uh, that, it, you know, surpasses any stone in that category you found up to this point. And then you take that stone and you carefully lay it with a mortar of gold in your wall and you go back and find more stones. This is something like the picture that we have here, that a treasurer is one who loves and appreciates 
the uh, beauty of God's word and his precepts and his statutes, his commandments, his testimonies, his way, his word, and recognizes that elements of his word are like gemstones. But these gemstones are, it serve more use than just to show off, you know, on a ring on one's finger. They actually serve to be fitted in a wall. Thus, a treasurer, a godly young person is called to be a treasurer, and as a treasurer, they recognize the value and the strength of God's word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have fitted the precious stones of your precepts as, <coughs> as a wall to guard myself against transgression of your ways. Now, I don't know if you guys grew up with the Christian Pledge of Allegiance, but if I remember it correctly, it went something like this. I pledge allegiance to the, holy, or to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will hide its word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Now those words are basically an application by vow or statement of devotion, a statement of resolve that are gleaned from Scripture. Two of the Scriptures that provide the context for that pledge are from Psalm 119, and one of them is verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, I mentioned a little while ago taking a highlighter, which is something that I'm doing, and highlighting every synonym for God's, uh, God's word in Psalm 119. And I'm not sure what the count will be by the time we're done, but I counted 10 references this morning, and I believe there's uh, six, seven, eight references in the first eight verses. So putting that together, we have 18 gemstones, as it were, in the text thus far. And as you take, like I took an orange highlighter and highlighted these words, it, they, they uh, start to shine forth as sort of a visible representation of their value. <coughs> Excuse me, verse 1. <clears throat> uh, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law. In law, I highlighted that, of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. There again, highlighted. And then as you see all these words, they shine forth, as it were, like jewels from the text, way, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, statutes, word, so on and so forth. A godly young person, a person who is equipped for the trials of youth, will learn to recognize the treasures in the scriptures and the treasures in God's word that will provide for them a strong defense against that which would challenge their faith preparation, building of the city walls, as it were, or storing up in your heart that which will provide a defense against the sin that we would otherwise so easily stumble into. Verse 14, in the way, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches, defense and delight. There is a reference in scripture that's my favorite one, which uh, expounds upon this concept of the wisdom of God as precious treasure. We don't have time to turn there today, but on your own time, consider Job 28. You know, uh, the author there poetically describes the pursuit of riches in spite of the hardship that attends the way. So you dig into a mountainside following a vein of gold, for instance, or I thought of this picture in my mind this week. Imagine you're out panning for gold in a stream in Montana, and you hear that there may be uh, you know, nuggets uh, strewn about this bed that have washed down over the years from the mountainside from which the stream originates. Well, you've been at it for about five or six hours and your hands are starting to feel you know, uh, a little shriveled from the water and whatnot. Perhaps you scraped yourself you know, on your shovel and you got, uh, uh, you're bleeding a bit and you're just beginning to get a little hungry and exhausted. And then on hour seven, you're shaking and lo and behold, about the size of the end of your thumb is a brilliant gold nugget. Now at that point, uh, you've struck it rich. You can't believe it. It's amazing. It's a miracle. Look at this treasure that's here. Do you, at that point, uh, how concerned are you about how hungry you are? How, are you uh, exhausted anymore? Do you complain about that little scrape on your hand or that you've been standing in the water this whole time? No. Because the treasure so far outweighs the sacrifice 
It eclipses it. And everything else is lost in the light of this great find. You're rich after all. And this is the heart of one who takes seriously the treasure of God's word. Though it takes work to understand the scriptures. Though it takes some discipline to put the uh, threads of understanding together. You know, the word in theology is hermeneutics, which is to interpret scripture according to a correct understanding of the rest of its context. And uh, this would be a way of understanding what scripture says by diligent and dutiful attention and a disciplined attentiveness to the scholarly quest for understanding the word of God. And the word of God takes real digging and real work to, uh, in, in order to understand it. But if what you glean after sifting through God's scriptures is a gold nugget in the pan, then what happens? Well, the precious treasure of what you have obtained in that discipline and that study so far outweighs the work that is necessary that it gives you motivation to continue. And this is what a godly young person does. He takes seriously the discipline of biblical understanding because he knows that the value of what it produces so far outweighs the sacrifice because it's treasure. Therefore, his preparation is, ple- uh, is there's real pleasure in his preparation. Both defense and delight come into view as you take seriously God's word. Third point this morning, the godly young person, one who is properly equipped for the trials of youth, is a soldier, a treasurer, and a, also a student. Of course, this overlaps with what we've been saying, but notice this is the chiastic epicenter, if you will, a central theme in our section here. Verses 12 and 13 say the following. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. You know, centuries ago, in the days of the early church or in ancient Greek philosophy, there were uh, student and teacher models that were quite different than what we might see today. A sage or a philosopher or someone who is gifted in his craft, excuse me, of understanding and explaining, you know, his theories on reality, could gather for himself a following, disciples, people who are students. And so faithful and loyal would these students be that they would literally follow behind him everywhere he went. And a lot of times these guys would swear off the, you know, kind of basic amenities of life and take up uh, a whole different lifestyle of attention to thought such that, you know, they wouldn't, uh, they would be out wandering in the desert or meditating or taking up a monastic lifestyle. Nevertheless, their students would follow them. They would uh, sacrifice a life of ease and um, whatever affluence, you know, that an ordinary vocation would promise to follow their teacher into the wilderness because they considered what he had to share that precious. And this is the idea here. Of course, in the New Testament, the followers of Jesus come to mind, do they not? Take, you know, drop your nets and follow me, Jesus says. Take up your cross and follow me. Anyone who obeys that command uh, has a high view of his teacher. Of course, the disciples called Jesus their teacher. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Uh, Messiah, teacher, rabbi, blessed are you. Your thoughts and your understanding is incredible. I realize as I listen that I want to devote my life and attention, even if it requires great sacrifice, to follow you, follow in your footsteps, to glean, to hang on with rapt attention to every word that you say, to write them down, to take care not to forget them, to become a student of your way of life and your thinking. This is the idea in verse 12. Blessed are you, teach me your statutes. Biblically, teaching is submission to authority. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The uh, author of the Proverbs says, Proverbs 1.7, and of course that is a central theme throughout the book of Proverbs and wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is to say, a reverence for the teacher, for the authority. Submission to the authority is the way that proper education is pursued. And in this sense, we understand that submission ultimately to the authority of God makes us a student of His. 
teaching is submission to authority. The biblical philosophy of education is that we are to glean from the gifted instructor and to recognize that he has something to share and that in our learning and submitting to the framework of his understanding, we are being a diligent disciple or student. This comes into play in the challenges of your life, young people. Please understand that some of you will go to uh, schools of higher education and learning and so on and so forth, and you will be called to submit to an authority that may be false. The biblical philosophy of education is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not the fear of the scientific community is the beginning of wisdom. Not the fear, uh, fear of the most prolific and accomplished authors in Western literature is the beginning of wisdom. Not the fear of the cosmologists of our day who postulate the origins of life in the universe began exclusively by natural processes is the beginning of wisdom. No. In fact, all of these false claims to authority need to be held accountable by the godly young person who is a student of the ultimate authority, God and His Word. You may be learning something, but it's only provisional in these settings. That is to say, there's some value marginally or whatever provisionally to be gleaned in sometimes a higher education uh, context, but only insofar as what you're teaching by common grace is affirmed by God and His world in the first place. This is what it means to be in submission to authority. Now, there is a distinction uh, between submission and suspicion, is there not? This is a distinction that I learned from Albert Moeller, and he helpfully laid this out. He said, we need a hermeneutic of submission, not a hermeneutic of suspicion. And what did he mean by this? Well, in secular scholarship, they will study the Word of God, but they do it suspiciously. They think to themselves, hey, we, don't, we can't necessarily take it on authority that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. We need to consider that this is probably a product you know, of the myths of the day or people's best understanding of God given their cultural experience, etc. And this is called higher criticism. You take a standard that's higher than God's scripture, you submit to that, and then you hold the Bible in suspicion and you carefully analyze it as if you were a scientist and you put the Bible under the microscope and you use the superior tools at your disposal, like your, uh, the scientific method and so forth, to analyze and to place as a subject under your authoritative purview the Holy Word of God. Do you see how this is upside down? It's not to say the Word of God can't stand up under intense scrutiny. It certainly can. But be careful the attitude with which you approach the precepts and the principles and the commandments and the statutes and the testimonies and the ways of God Himself. Do you do so as a suspicious scientific observer judging for yourself whether they are correct? Or do you do so by submitting to Him as your ultimate authority? Recognizing that part of the beauty of God's Word is that it is self-affirming, but the power of God's Word requires you to bow before its authority. We need to have a hermeneutic of submission to the Word of God and suspicion of everything else. When your teacher, let's say you're in public school <coughs> or something like that, circumstances you know, of your life, and provide you this, uh, or find you in a situation where you're in a secular education situation. Please understand this. You are not, properly speaking, being educated. Why? Because education, properly speaking, is submission to the right authority. That is, submitting to God and fear of Him is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, your calling is to hold in suspicion the worldview that is present at that secular institution. Incidentally, education is falling apart in American and Western culture. And why is this? It's because they have the wrong authority. 
We've submitted to humanism as the standard for understanding, which has led us down this absurd road of postmodernism, which is this claim that we can decide for ourselves what's absolute and true, and ultimately there's no transcendent reality above us, but we ourselves are the standard of everything else. And once you step into the absurd waters of this kind of flood of ridiculous claims, then all bets are off, nothing is true anymore, and everything is up for revision and review, and it eventually implodes in on itself. This is basically the opposite of Psalm 119, 12, and 13. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. Biblical teaching involves learning and testimony. What is the goal of education in Scripture? How do you know that a student is properly equipped when he's able to teach others? Wasn't this what Paul told Timothy in our verse we read earlier? 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. The gospel that you have heard proclaimed by my words, take and diligently teach others, raise up others. So the godly young person who is equipped for the trials of youth is a student. He's a student ultimately that submits to the Lord and His Word as authority, and a student who makes it his goal to testify according to this standard to others the glorious truths of God. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. This brings up our final point this morning. A godly young person equipped for the trials of youth is not just a soldier, not just a treasurer, not just a student, but an enthusiast. Verses 15 and 16. I will meditate on your precepts. I fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Whatever you are most interested in, that is what is easiest to recall. Now, you may not be <coughs> an expert on the technical aspects of computer programming, let's say. But somebody who, you know, like we typically call a nerd, has an enthusiastic desire and zeal for understanding these kinds of things, right? And uh, other people remain oblivious largely because their interest level is not the same. Unless you're an enthusiast about computer programming and algorithms and the sort of puzzle and the constituent parts that make software go round, uh, you will likely remain like me. Um, just frustrated at technology and uh, subcontracting out every challenge to your brother who actually gets paid because he's good at these kinds of things. However, I do like to build houses. I like home plans. I'm sort of an enthusiast. It's the only computer program I actually know how to run <laughs> is how to design a house. And so why can I do that and not something else? Well, in large part, it's because I have made it uh, a part, or it's something that I enjoy doing. It's something I fixed my eyes upon and something that I delight in, so to speak. And I'm sure you can relate to this as well. Every person in this room is enthusiastic about something, I'm sure. Well, what should we be most enthusiastic about? If not the commandments, the word, the statutes, the rules, the testimony, the precepts, the ways, the word of God. And that's the point. A godly young person is an enthusiast. You know, I remember back in the day when I was young and young people were enthusiastic about their cars. They would install big sound systems, you know, so you get that bass thumping and you can roll slowly through town. And the whole goal was to see who could, you know, make a more a deafening experience and annoy the adults around you more than the next car and so forth. And so you would, you know, work hard and you would spend most of your money probably unwisely on souping up your sound system. Well, uh, young people are enthusiastic about, uh, that's just one example among a hundred things. You know, think of uh, sports and fashion and popularity and self-presentation uh, and social media and broadcasting oneself and uh, image and expectations of culture and pursuits and entertainment and movies and whatever. Uh, do you, perhaps you're an, you know, a voracious reader. All these types of things for the young person are just a buffet of something to be enthusiastic about. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, we've referenced before because it kind of has a journey motif, just as Psalm 119 has a journey motif. You start with the young person and his challenges, 
and then there's a progress. There's a, through the course of the scripture, it closes with a seasoned follower of the Lord and his word and, and uh, re- in references and meditations accordingly. But uh, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, a journey, a motif as well. And at a certain point, the protagonist, the main character, encounters Vanity Fair. And what is Vanity Fair? Well, imagine, you know, it's carnival barkers and glitzing lights and bells ringing and uh, games and contests and cotton candy as far as the eye can see. All these things are set up to attract the attention. And uh, they're just a whole you know, array of things that a young person or whoever's visiting there is invited to be enthusiastic about. The internet's like that. Vanity Fair now is virtually has no borders. It's a bottomless pit of never-ending things to attract the eye, the glitzing lights, and, the, um, and yeah, to no end you can pursue these kinds of things. However, if a young man is to guard his way according to God's word, if he is to keep his way pure, He must be an enthusiast about the precepts, the ways, and the statutes of the Lord. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your way. This language of fixing the eyes is, of course, that which holds the attention. It's the same idea we've studied of late from Jacob when he was called to fix his eyes on something in his dream. You guys remember this? Uh, The reader of Genesis 28 is called to fix his eyes on things as well. And, of course, the word is behold. Behold, three things the reader is begged to consider in that account in Genesis 28. Behold, a stairway, heaven's stairway touching ground. Behold, the angels of God ascending and descending upon that stairway. And behold, Yahweh himself, the Lord, standing upon the top. And so we talked about how these three concepts are extremely significant and profound and relate to all of life and even salvation itself. Man cannot climb to God his own way. God must extend a way unto man. And behold, God's will is constantly interacting in his creation. These agents of his holy decree, these agents of his providence, these agents of his direct influence and personal involvement in history, represented by the angels, are constantly going back and forth between the realms of glory and our experience, and of course pictured above all others in the incarnation when Christ himself descends upon the stairway of heaven and his feet touch ground and therefore uh, he himself is established as the ladder and behold who is sovereign over all of this whose plan is it and who do we and and whose uh, glory and dominion is evident in all his creation and the wise man bows and realizes it's Yahweh it's the Lord it's the creator these are the things that Jacob and the reader is called to fix her, their eyes upon in Genesis 28. Of course, lift up your eyes is another phrase in Genesis that Abraham is called to do to look upon the promises and the covenant of God and what it holds out for him. And now the author of Psalm 119 begs us to lift up our eyes, begs us to behold, to fix our eyes, or more precisely, He has made a resolution and a vow to do the same. So by example, we read, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. What have you fixed your eyes upon, young people? What holds your attention? What are you enthusiastic about? What do you think about and what gets you excited? What motivates you? What puts a smile on your face? What do you enjoy talking to your friends about? Now granted, you're in a phase of life where a lot of things can come and go in this category that aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But if any one of those or a combination exalt themselves above the glory of God and become more important to you than the Lord himself, that is a dangerous place to be. You will not keep your way pure if the things that you're enthusiastic about begin to eclipse, become more important to you than the word of God itself. How can a young man keep his way pure? You know, that question is on everybody's mind these days. Given the degradation of our culture, given the free and unfettered and instant access to all kinds of sin and debauchery on the Internet, pornography is so readily accessible at the push of a button, for instance, or just the grotesque, you know, meditations of a people wholly given over to their depraved nature is documented, you know, instantly online and available 
And how can you keep your way pure when there are so many opportunities to entertain and to be enthusiastic about all of these sinful pursuits? Well, only by guarding your way according to the Word of God as a good soldier. Only by being a treasurer of God's Word, which values and prepares both with defense and delight according to God's way. Only as a student who submits to a teacher, submits to the teacher, the Word of God as the standard, and the rule, and the ultimate, and the foundation of all things for life and godliness and all areas of life and thought and understanding according to Him. And only when you are ultimately an enthusiast above all other things of the Word of God and His ways and that which God has given you by way of gifting and calling and vocation and interest, a few of those things we mentioned before, whether it's fixing cars or writing a computer program or doing uh, graphic arts or something along these lines, the Scriptures would call you to do these things to the glory of God. If the things that you're enthusiastic about and gifted in are pursued in such a way as to give Him glory, that is, that they are pursued according to His precepts, ways, statutes, and word, then you, as a godly young person, will be fortified for the tests and trials of youth. Realize and remember, a godly enthusiast realizes what is most important, and then he takes careful uh, care, he takes care to remember these things. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will not forget. We've referenced this idea many times in our Genesis series with respect to altars. Abraham sets a plants a tamarisk tree so that future generations do not forget, you know, what happened um, in that covenant arrangement um, with the foreign king. Abraham builds an altar at Bethel so that the future generations, namely Jacob himself, his grandson, would not forget that this is the Lord's house. Jacob, his eyes are open in that dream that we spoke of before, and then begins to follow in this repentance moment in his grandfather and his father's footsteps, and himself sets up an altar that, so that he and future generations would not forget. Delight in his statutes. Do not forget his word. Return time and time again to the altars, as it were. What are the altars in your life, young people? Perhaps it's this sermon right now that you're listening to, or at least what it represents. Perhaps it's the education that you receive if you come early and are going through the, uh, going through the systematic theology to help you understand the Scriptures. It's those family worship moments in your own home when your parents lay forth the scriptures and teach you and instruct you according to Deuteronomy 6 and 11, those instructions that we've received as parents all the way back and so forth. It's that moment when you were baptized, as, as you recall, and dunking under the waters. If you're a believer and have been baptized in the name of Jesus, you, uh, that picture is in glorious and powerful altar moment, as it were, representing your sins washed away having been buried with Christ, having been raised again with Him, that His experience is yours because you are in Him, and that you in baptism have safely passed through the waters of judgment, as in the days of Noah, the, those who were sinners and deserving of the wrath of God, uh, sunk beneath the waves, but those who found favor with Him through covenant were escorted through the waters of judgment, in the ark that Noah was called to build, and our ark is Jesus Christ. Therefore, baptism represents these things and is an altar moment. Of course, at the Lord's table, another altar, as it were. Anyway, in these and many others, we have uh, tangible ways to meditate on His precepts, to fix His eyes upon His way, to delight in the statutes, and to not forget His word. And I would urge you to take these things seriously. Because the trials of youth are difficult. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can you raise kids these days? I don't understand how, you parents, how many of us parents have heard that. You know, there is an answer to that question. Uh, that, that a young man can keep his way pure. But there is only one sufficient answer. It's the uh, theme of this sermon and the theme of Psalm 119. The sufficiency of Scripture for the test of youth. The sufficient way 
to keep one's way pure is the Scriptures. It is the law, the testimonies, the ways, the precepts. It is the Word of God. Let us remember these things as we close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to submit to the proclamation of your word today. And so much as it has been rightly divided and proclaimed, we ask that you would give us a deep desire, that we would be enthusiastic about it, a student and a treasurer of your scripture, and a good soldier equipped on mission, devoted to his task and to his master and the calling that we have. Lord, that for the young people in this place, I pray that you would write upon the table of their hearts, even in the days of their youth, these things which are sufficient to keep them in the faith, to strengthen them and to equip them for their call, and to stand in a day when their faith is challenged, and to realize that in Christ the trials of youth are overcome because the sufficiency of His Scripture will prepare us with the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel of peace, the belt of truth, and all of the armaments, the shield of faith that you supply, O Lord. I pray that you would give us a heart, and especially our young people in this place, to pay close attention to what you have said and to submit accordingly and to walk in your ways. Finally, we pray if there are any in the hearing of this message who have not bowed to you, Jesus Christ, in the first place, that the proclamation of your, we pray the proclamation of your word today would reveal to them their sin. They would surrender in the light of your glorious truth. That they would turn from their sin and turn to you. And then join us in this call as soldiers, as treasurers, as students and enthusiasts of your holy scriptures. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.